Since the dawn of civilization, spies of every nation and culture have worked to infiltrate their adversaries and glean the information that will give their side the advantage. The stakes are sky high, the strategies varied and imaginative, and the ultimate sign of success is that no one ever even knew you were there. In each episode, we will explore the moral and ethical gray zones of espionage, where treachery and betrayal go hand in hand with cunning and courage. This is the Spycraft 101 podcast. Welcome to your clandestine classroom. This is episode number 36 of the Spycraft 101 podcast. This is another solo episode where I share some of my own research with you. Today, I'm going to be covering a brief history of the use of poison as a tool for political assassinations by the Soviet Union and later by the Russian Federation. For nearly a century now, the Soviet and Russian governments have had a fascination with poisons as tools for political assassinations. This fascination, this obsession really, has led them to the cutting edges of chemical solutions and even into radiological options, radioactive options, along with several highly visible failures and likely hundreds of silent successes. And it all started with an assassin's bullets in 1918. Fania Kaplan was a zealous young radical socialist who had already spent 11 years in a Siberian labor camp. She went, When she was just 16 years old, she participated in an assassination plot against Tsarist government official and was caught and convicted. She was released in 1917 at about the age of 27. But by then, the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party had split into two factions. One of them was called the Mensheviks and was led by Julius Martov, who Fania Kaplan followed. The other party became the Bolsheviks, who you're probably a lot more familiar with, led by Vladimir Lenin. Even though they both had socialist goals for Russia, the two parties were in conflict against each other, which continued for years, even after the Bolsheviks initiated the October Revolution of 1917. In August of 1918, Fania targeted Vladimir Lenin for assassination. She approached him as he was departing a Soviet arms factory in Moscow and fired at him three times with a revolver. Two of her bullets hit Lenin before she was wrestled to the ground by other people who had gathered around Lenin. He was hit in the neck and shoulder, but he survived the assassination attempt just barely. Fania's bullets had been coated with curare resin, which is a poison derived from a plant that had been brought back to Europe from the Amazon by Sir Walter Raleigh and other explorers as far back as the 16th century. Fania herself was executed a few days later by the Cheka secret police organization. Lennon eventually recovered from his wounds, but the poison diagnosis his doctors gave him combined with his own suffering, looks to have stirred his imagination. If this could be done to him by a splintered revolutionary organization, just imagine how he could deploy poison to serve the state using the full resources available to him. Fania Kaplan probably could not have imagined the long-lasting consequences of her choice to use poison-coated bullets in August of 1918. Lenin eventually passed away after a series of strokes in 1924, some historians believe that the curare resin may have contributed to his worsening condition over the years, and others believe 
he was poisoned yet again in 1924 by someone he trusted, possibly even Joseph Stalin himself. Since then, poison has become an integral part of the Russian government's arsenal. In 1921, Lenin established the government's first laboratory dedicated to researching and creating new weaponized poisons. Over the years, this laboratory has moved in and out of the shadows of history. It's been known by many different names. Lenin originally called it the Special Room, and later Laboratory Number 1, Laboratory Number 12, and Lab X. Finally, under Joseph Stalin, it was designated Camera, or the Chamber, in English. That name has stuck with it through the current era, and Camera is the one I'll use to refer to it for the remainder of this episode. But even with all of the drastic changes that took place in Russia in the 20th and 21st centuries, one thing has apparently not changed, and that is the willingness to use poison to kill enemies of the Russian government wherever they can be found. Laws, treaties, international borders mean nothing to the Russian government when they put someone on their target list. They have killed dozens, if not hundreds of people with poison over the past century. KGB agents themselves uh, and the other organizations that preceded the KGB, like the MGB and the OGPU and the NKVD, they were never authorized to actually visit Camera's facility. Only Camera employees and a few high-level bureaucrats ever gained access. Instead, when the KGB determined that poison might be useful in a particular operation, they would submit a formal request to Camera. This request included details such as the intended target, their body type, height, weight, anything known about their eating habits, their exercise habits, and other patterns of life. Once this information was submitted, the specialists at camera would select the ideal poison for the target. Every individual deployment of a poison was therefore tailored for maximum effect against its individual target. In this episode, I'm going to cover a few of the most significant cases over the past century here, but the lingering question is how many do we not know about? It's not just possible, but probable that a lot of Russian dissidents and expats, refugees, journalists, and turncoats who were thought to have died of natural causes were actually killed with poison. A middle-aged man under a lot of stress who dies of an apparent heart attack is not a newsworthy episode. It's not a newsworthy event, and there have been many of those over the past century. It's likely that we will never know the Russian government's true body count on this particular thing or on any of their other activities, as a matter of fact. But we can examine the cases where it is known. And the targeted killings don't just include dissidents, but members of the government who had made their own enemies as well. Felix Zerzhensky, the founder of the Cheka secret police, honestly just one of history's greatest human terrors, died of a heart attack in 1926. He was replaced by a guy named Menjinsky an expert in poisons who himself died of a sudden illness eight years later in 1934. And Joseph Stalin's rapid decline in health and his eventual death in 1953 deserves some serious scrutiny as well because some people think that he too was poisoned by someone close to him in his inner circle. If you've listened to every episode of my podcast so far, then you probably remember that Russian poisonings have come up here more than once. I have a solo episode devoted to the story of Nikolai Koklov, a Soviet agent who defected to the West in 1954 after being tasked to kill a Russian dissident leader 
named Georgi Okolovich. Instead of killing Okolovich in West Berlin, Koklov made contact with him, identified himself, and asked for help with defecting. After he turned himself in to West German and U.S. authorities, Koklov was the star of a famous press conference where he announced who he was, what his intentions had been, and he put on display the weapons that he had been issued for his assassination mission. Koklov showed off four silent, electrically fired pistols that had been custom-made by camera for his mission. They fired 25 caliber bullets, each of which contained a half a gram of potassium cyanide, which was 100 times a lethal dose for an adult. The revelations at this press conference caused an international stir, and they wouldn't be forgotten by the Soviet government, who was supremely embarrassed by his defection. Three years later, Koklov himself was targeted at a conference in Munich. He fell violently ill immediately after drinking a cup of coffee and was found to be suffering from thallium poisoning not long afterwards, from which he also barely survived. So if you want to hear his story in more detail, listen to episode 18 of this podcast. Around the same time that Koklov was poisoned in Munich in 1957, another Soviet-trained assassin was on his way to West Germany to kill a Ukrainian expatriate. Bogdan Stasinski was recruited by the Soviet NKVD at the age of 19 after he was arrested for riding on a train without a ticket. He was a Ukrainian national himself, and he was pressured into collaborating with them to prevent his family from being targeted by the NKVD as punishment for his own refusal. At first, he was required to travel to Munich to spy on Ukrainian nationalists who were opposed to the Soviet government, but then in 1957, he was shocked when he was ordered to assassinate a man. It was the same man that he had been following named Lev Rebet. Rebet was a prominent member of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, which strongly opposed the Soviet government and, in fact, had collaborated with Germany during World War II with the goal of creating an independent Ukraine. So these guys were fascists who had been fighting communists on the Soviet and Ukrainian side. They also carried out violent attacks against Ukrainian communists and others that they saw as pro-Soviet. So you can see why... Rebet was eventually targeted for assassination himself. Stashinsky was given a brand new weapon for his mission to kill Rebet. It was a gas gun that sprayed liquid cyanide when triggered. Stashinsky practiced by firing water-filled glass ampules at a cardboard target to learn the weapon's effective range. Then he purchased a dog for a real test of the cyanide's effectiveness. The dog died within about three minutes of being sprayed in the face so he was confident the weapon worked as intended. Stashinsky also, excuse me, Stashinsky stalked Rebet and killed him so efficiently that the police didn't investigate it as a murder. They assumed it was a heart attack since there was no evidence of a wound. It was just liquid sprayed onto his face. Two years later, in 1959, Stashinsky was once again told to kill another Ukrainian expatriate leader named Stepan Bandera. This time, he was given a double-barreled gas gun. He waited for Bandera outside the man's apartment one day and met him on the third floor landing as Bandera returned home. The poison gun was concealed in a rolled up newspaper. And when Bandera opened his door, Stashinsky sprayed him and watched as his face turned black and purple almost immediately right on his own doorstep. Although he'd killed two people on the orders of the Soviet government, this was never what Stashinsky had intended when he joined the NKVD against his own will so many years earlier. 
He was racked by guilt with uh, over what he had done, and eventually he himself defected from East Berlin over to West Berlin with his wife in August of 1961, just a few hours before the Berlin Wall went up without his knowledge. So he would have been trapped had he waited even six more hours. He would have been trapped behind the Berlin Wall. He confessed everything, and eventually he served eight years in prison for murder in West Germany. The double-barreled gas gun is now on display at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., and you can hear a lot more about this particular case on my podcast episode number 20 with Dr. Plokey from Harvard University, who himself is a Ukrainian historian. Camera also sometimes worked with their Warsaw Pact allies, including in the 1978 assassination of Georgi Markov in London, which was carried out by members of the Bulgarian Committee for State Security. Markov was a Bulgarian dissident writer who defected to London in 1969. Since then, he had been highly critical of the Bulgarian president, Todor Zhivkov, who Markov described as, quote-unquote, a minor dictator with a second-rate sense of humor. Markov was sentenced by a Bulgarian court in absentia to six and a half years in prison for the crime of defecting to the United Kingdom. Zhivkov also ordered all of Markov's previous literary works removed from library shelves and even had his name edited out of film credits. And for his part, Markov frequently appeared on BBC and on Radio Free Europe to criticize the Bulgarian regime. So around early 1978, Zhivkov asked the Soviet government to assist him in eliminating Markov in London. The chairman of the KGB at that time was Yuri Andropov, who later led the Soviet Union as the premier after Brezhnev's death. So Andropov was approved the operation. KGB personnel went to Bulgaria to discuss the available options with the Bulgarian Committee for State Security. They considered three different options. The first was poison jelly applied to Markov's skin somehow. The second was poison in his food or drink. And the third option was a poison pellet fired into his skin from short range. The Bulgarians decided on the poison pellet option and camera started testing to come up with a suitable poison plus a delivery system. The scientists at camera soon decided on ricin, which was derived from the castor oil plant as the poison of choice for this particular mission. It's incredibly deadly in small doses, and one ounce of ricin could render up to 90,000 lethal doses of poison. It also acted slowly enough that the assassin would have time to escape the region before the target developed symptoms. It wouldn't, it wouldn't appear as uh, symptomatic for a couple of days, as a matter of fact. They then manufactured a platinum iridium alloy pellet less than two millimeters wide, which could be filled with a tiny dose of ricin. The pellet had two microscopic holes drilled into it to allow the release of the ricin into the target's body. The tiny holes were plugged with like a sugary kind of substance, which was designed to slowly dissolve at the temperature of a human body and then release the ricin. Testing began in Bulgaria by firing a ricin pellet into a horse, which died not long after that. The Bulgarians then moved on from animal testing to human trials by selecting a prisoner who had already been handed a death sentence. They made him the unwilling test subject for the ricin pellet. A Bulgarian agent approached the prisoner with an umbrella 
that had been converted into a surreptitious firing device and shot the ricin pellet into the prisoner's body. The prisoner shouted when he felt the sting, and he apparently correctly deduced that his death sentence had just been carried out. He immediately went into hysterics, but ultimately he did not actually pass away from this first test. And the Bulgarians eventually determined that the ricin had failed to release from its pellet container. I'm not sure how they determined that. It might have been from a postmortem autopsy, of course. The next human trial was in the field against a different Bulgarian assassination target. In late August 1978, the Bulgarian Security Service attempted to kill Vladimir Kostov in Paris. Kostov was a colonel who defected to France while working undercover operations there in Paris several years earlier. While he was riding up an escalator one day, he felt a sting in his back, and he turned to see a man carrying an umbrella running away from him. Just like the initial test against the prisoner, the intended target did not pass away once again. Kostov was wearing a heavy sweater at the time of the attack, which apparently slowed down the fired pellet enough that the ricin did not enter his bloodstream. Although he was seriously ill for about two days after the attack, he eventually recovered completely. Ten days later, the Bulgarians felt like they were ready to initiate the real attack against Markov after mitigating the previous problems they had discovered with the delivery system. So on September 7, 1978, Georgi Markov was walking along a crowded sidewalk on the Waterloo Bridge over the River Thames in London. He suddenly felt a sharp pain in his right thigh, and he turned to see a man picking up an umbrella off the sidewalk. A taxi pulled up right beside the stranger, and he got in the taxi and immediately departed the area. Four days after the attack, Markov is in St. George's Hospital in London, and he's dying. He described the incident on the Waterloo Bridge to his physician, and it's probably not surprising at this point to us that the incident was not initially taken seriously as a cause of illness, because these doctors had never dealt with anything like this before, and the idea that a conspiracy involving two different Soviet bloc governments and a poison-firing umbrella just did not seem like a realistic cause of death. But Markov died later that afternoon after discussing or after describing the incident to his physician. And once the London police realized that he was a Bulgarian defector, they opened a serious postmortem inquiry. The press caught the story, and soon his case was getting international attention because headlines all over the world covered this mysterious death of a Bulgarian dissident. At first, police had very little to go on. There weren't any known witnesses, there was no specific suspect, and no murder weapon either. The pellet had been removed from his body and examined, but the poison that it had contained had been absorbed into his body. Fortunately, things changed soon for the better. When Vladimir Kostov learned about Markov's death in the international press, he contacted the French government, who in turn contacted Scotland Yard investigators. The pellet that he had been shot with 10 days previously, or now two weeks previously, was still in Kostov's back. It was surgically removed, and investigators quickly determined that it still contained ricin. Despite this new information, for many years after that, the case remained officially unsolved. Although there wasn't much doubt as to who had organized and facilitated the assassination. In 2006, this would be, what, 28 years after the attack, a documentary film from Windfall Films revealed that the assassin was Francesco Gulino, a Danish citizen of Italian descent. After he was recruited by the Bulgarian security service, he was set up undercover 
as an antiques dealer in Copenhagen, Denmark. Gulino passed away in 2021, and he always denied any involvement with the Bulgarian Security Service, and he was also never tried or convicted on any charges. However, documents from Bulgarian Security Service were uncovered in the mid-2000s, which showed that Gulino had received training and monetary payments from them, so it's clear he was one of their agents. The murder weapon itself was never recovered, although it has been reported that a stack of identical umbrella weapons was discovered in the Bulgarian Interior Ministry after the fall of the Zhivkov regime in 1989. Two replica weapons are on display now. One is in the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., and one is in the German Spy Museum in Berlin. But as recently as 2017, Scotland Yard was still investigating the case. So that's, what, nearly 40 years after his death, the case is still open? And there are indications that an umbrella may not have been the actual weapon used. The ricin pellet may have been fired from some sort of pellet pistol. Scotland Yard uh, has still not released an official report on this right now, so we can't say for certain. But it's very possible that it was something more like what was carried by Kuklov on his mission in 1954 in Berlin. He had more standard handheld devices rather than an umbrella. It could have been an umbrella carried in one hand and the weapon carried in the other hand, and the umbrella was cover for action, so to speak. So it's hard to say, but uh, an umbrella has kind of entered the cultural lexicon as an assassin's weapon of choice, and there's no evidence that it was anything else at this point. So fast forward to 2004. In 2004, a Ukrainian presidential candidate named Viktor Yushchenko was poisoned during a dinner while he was on the campaign trail. Yushchenko had set up a meeting with Volodymyr Setsyuk, the deputy chief of the Ukrainian Security Service, to discuss the service's role if he were to be elected president. But just one week prior to this dinner, Setsyuk had been in Moscow to meet with FSB officers, FSB being the replacement organization for the KGB. While there, he was probably recruited into a plan by the FSB to poison Yushchenko, who they saw as an impediment to Russian influence in Ukraine. Two days later, Satsyuk served Yushchenko dinner at his own home in what was probably a dress rehearsal for the assassination attempt that followed a few days later. On the night of the dinner, this would be the second dinner, Satsyuk's security team engineered a situation to separate Yushchenko from his faithful friend and his informal bodyguard named Yevgeny Chervonenko. Chervonenko often tested Yushchenko's food for him as a precaution. The bodyguard was pressured to ride in a separate vehicle from the presidential candidate, and then, on the way to Satsyuk's dacha, he was told via radio that Yushchenko wanted to go in without him so he could discuss sensitive matters with the security service leaders. A few hours later, after finishing dinner, Yushchenko had become very ill. Soon, his face became incredibly swollen and jaundiced, and he was diagnosed with chloracne. The poison in his food turned out to be a dioxin called TCDD, which was also the most potent compound found in the famous Agent Orange defoliant used during the Vietnam War. I encourage you guys to get online and look up some photos of Yushchenko if you get the chance. It's incredible when you see him. It turned him into a disfigured monster almost. I hate to say it. Um, he's recovered significantly now. Um, he survived the poisoning. And just one week later, 
against his doctor's orders, he was back on the campaign trail. He didn't try to hide his disfigurement. And in January 2005, just a few months after the attack, he was elected president. Of course, there was an investigation into his poisoning, but it dragged on through 2010 with no clear resolution. 2010 is also when Yushchenko left office. Once again, there was little doubt that the Russian government was behind the assassination attempt, but nothing was conclusively proven. Uh, Satsyuk himself, the deputy head of the security service, fled to Russia and eventually received Russian citizenship. And Russia since then has refused demands to extradite him back to Ukraine to face questioning or any criminal charges. So take a look at Yushchenko's photos if you get a chance. He looks much better now, but he was a drastically different man for several years after this attack. It's absolutely incredible what they did to this poor guy. And thankfully, he survived the attack, and thankfully, he recovered well, but he still looks very different than he did in 2004 prior to the attack, for sure. Before we go on, I want to take a moment to fill you guys in on the newest tool that I'm wearing and carrying in daily life. It's the Donovan Non-Metallic Knife from Black Triangle. If you aren't familiar with Black Triangle, then you're really missing out. I love these guys because they put the dagger in cloak and dagger. If you've been following me for a while now, then you probably already know why Black Triangle has called their newest non-metallic knife the Donovan. It's named after General William Wild Bill Donovan, the head of the U.S. Office of Strategic Services during World War II. Under Donovan, the OSS was unconventional, unexpected, and highly effective, just like Black Triangle's tools. The Donovan is manufactured here in the United States. It's made entirely of G10 composite, and it comes with a thermoplastic sheath and a couple of amazing extras, which you'll have to see for yourself. You can find it at blacktriangle.com. That's B-L-K triangle.com. You can also get 15% off your first order with Black Triangle using the discount code SPYCRAFT101 or by navigating to blacktriangle.com slash SPYCRAFT101. I love mine, and I know you're going to love yours too. So probably the most famous Russian assassination by poisoning occurred on November 1st, 2006, when Alexander Litvinenko, a former member of the Russian Federal Security Service, or FSB, suddenly became ill after a meeting in London with some of his old friends. Litvinenko joined the Russian Ministry of Internal Affairs in 1985, and he served primarily in KGB counterintelligence until 1991, when the Soviet Union itself collapsed. Afterwards, he became a member of the new FSB and served during the First Chechen War, where he ran a network of agents in Chechnya in the mid-1990s. By the late 1990s, he was a senior operational officer in the Directorate of Analysis and Suppression of Criminal Groups within the FSB. While he was serving in this position, Litvinenko realized that the entire system was corrupt from top to bottom. His job was to suppress criminal groups, but his own supervisors in the FSB were actively participating in protection schemes and attempting to squeeze these same criminal groups out of the market so that they themselves could get rich. So, along with several other FSB officers, Litvinenko spoke out against the FSB and against Vladimir Putin at a press conference with the Russian news organization Interfax. He was fired from the FSB and ordered not to leave Moscow. But after he waited in limbo for more than a year, he fled Russia in 2000, along with his family. They bought flight tickets, which included a layover at Heathrow Airport near London. While they were there, Litvinenko requested political asylum for his family, and they were able to remain in London, and the asylum request was granted on humanitarian grounds. 
Once he was settled in London, he began working as a source for British intelligence. Not long after that, he was being paid 2,000 British pounds monthly and regularly meeting with a handler known as Martin. Between 2000 and 2006, Litvinenko authored two nonfiction books which were very critical of Putin and of the FSB. In the first book, called The Gang from Lubyanka, Litvinenko claimed that the FSB had descended from a professional organization into an organized criminal enterprise. In a second book called Blowing Up Russia, Litvinenko stated that the infamous Russian apartment bombings of September 1999 were actually a false flag operation by the FSB intended to initiate the Second Chechen War and aid Vladimir Putin in his rise to power. He also made a lot of explosive allegations in TV and newspaper interviews regarding other incidents which he claimed were initiated by the FSB. These included the 1999 Armenian parliament shooting, which claimed the lives of the Armenian prime minister and seven other people. Then there was the Moscow theater hostage crisis, which resulted in at least 170 deaths and other incidents as well. Publishing these books and participating in these interviews obviously put a huge target on his back, and these kinds of public accusations would have put him high on the target list for FSB and for camera as well. Litvinenko's face became really well-known throughout Russia due to his high public profile now that he was in the United Kingdom. In fact, a Russian Armed Forces promotional film produced in 2003 showed Russian soldiers firing their rifles at a paper target with Litvinenko's face on it. The soldiers were from the Russian Ministry of Internal Affairs, first special purposes troop known as Vityaz. These targets were in use from at least 2003 until 2007, well after Litvinenko's death. So finally, on the evening of November 1st, 2006, in London, he had dinner at the Millennium Hotel with two former FSB colleagues named Dmitry Kovtun and Andrei Lugovoy. Lugovoy was on his third trip from Moscow to London in as many a weeks and had arrived the night prior, October 31st. This time, he had brought his entire family with him. His operational cover was that the family was watching the CSKA Moscow Football Club play Arsenal in the Champions League the following evening. While he was in town for the football match, he called Litvinenko to see if he wanted to meet up to talk. Litvinenko agreed and arrived at the Millennium Hotel a few hours afterwards. The waiter who served them that night later reported that after he delivered the pot of tea to the table, the two men made an attempt to block his view of what happened next. Later, after they left the restaurant, the waiter poured the remaining tea out into the sink and noticed that it was noticeably darker and thicker than before. He believed the men had sprayed a chemical substance into the tea after he delivered it to the table. So a few days after his dinner with Koftun and Lugovoy, Litvinenko's hair started falling out quickly. He passed away three weeks later in a London hospital. He was alert and cognizant almost to the end and gave an interview in which he clearly stated that he believed he had been poisoned by Russian agents on the order of Vladimir Putin. Doctors determined that he had ingested a radioactive substance which they had never before encountered. In some ways, the camera's continuous innovation into uncharted territory was the very calling card that it sought to avoid. After Litvinenko's hospitalization, British law enforcement and intelligence agencies swung into action. 
They were alarmed by the sensational but apparently plausible claims that he made from his hospital bed. With help from the Atomic Weapons Establishment Research Laboratory, they determined that the poisoning agent was polonium-210, which was a practically undeniable indicator that Limpvenenko's death had been state-sponsored murder. And that's because polonium-210 could only be produced in a military-owned nuclear reactor. There was no other reasonable method for producing or delivering it. So once they were armed with this new information and had new techniques to search for traces of polonium, British police literally followed a radioactive trail around London, discovering nearly 40 different polonium-210 hotspots across the city. Because they feared a public panic, this information was not released until much later. They also used London's extensive network of surveillance cameras to track the movements of Koftun and Lugovoy. The radiation hotspots were checked against the travel pattern of the two Russian intelligence officers and were an almost perfect match. There was no doubt that the FSB agents had traveled to London carrying the polonium used to murder Litvinenko. Investigators determined that Koftun and Lugovoy had probably tried to poison Litvinenko at an earlier lunch meeting a few weeks before on October 16th at a sushi bar. But for some reason, they were unsuccessful and they continued to carry the polonium around the city for the next two weeks until the next opportunity presented itself. London prosecutors declared Litvinenko's death to be an official murder inquiry. While it's obvious that it was a murder, since the prime suspects were Russian government agents, it was actually a pretty bold move on their part with major political and international implications. But ultimately, nothing came of the inquiry as the Russian government did not cooperate, surprising no one. The following year, Andrei Lugovoy was admitted to the Russian parliament and therefore gained diplomatic immunity from any and all charges. The parliament position seems to have been a reward for a successful mission completed. Litvinenko's widow Marina has continued to seek justice for her late husband in the years following his murder. 2007, she registered a complaint with the European Court of Human Rights although once again nothing came of it. An inquest was held in London between 2013 and 2016, and that inquest found that Litvinenko was definitely killed by Koftun and Lugovoy, and there was a strong probability that they were acting on behalf of the Russian government. So the British government requested extradition of the two men from Russia, but of course the request was not granted. While Litvinenko's death remains a technically unsolved mystery, no one doubts who was behind it at all. The problem, as always, is holding a man as powerful as Vladimir Putin responsible in a meaningful and tangible way. International sanctions had not had much of an effect up to this point in curbing his use of camera, and his political enemies are more aware of that than anyone else. So fast forward a few more years to 2010 or thereabouts, the GRU, which is Russia's military intelligence agency, set its sights on one of their own former GRU agents, Colonel Sergei Skripal. Skripal was a mid-level intelligence agent with the GRU in the mid-1990s when he was posted to Madrid, Spain. The Soviet Union had collapsed just a few years before, so it was a time of change and austerity within the new Russian Federation. Like many other agents around him, Skripal was looking for ways to augment his income and enhance his family's lifestyle. Then a Spanish intelligence agent approached Skripal with an offer of work, and he agreed. Spaniards soon passed Skripal along 
to a British MI6 agent known as Pablo Miller, which of course is a pseudonym. Skripal then worked for Miller for the next several years as a paid informant. Over the course of nearly a decade, Skripal was paid around $100,000 for his cooperation with British intelligence. Some of Skripal's co-workers in the GRU later reported that he would pay the bill for everyone anytime they went out to eat together during that period, which was a highly unusual act at the time when everyone in Russia was struggling financially. Five years after he retired from the GRU in 1999 and returned to Russia, the FSB arrested Skripal. In 2006, Russian court sentenced him to 13 years in prison on espionage-related charges. So up until this point, Skripal's story isn't really that shocking, and he apparently didn't do serious damage to Russian national defense. Uh, his information was undoubtedly useful to the West, but not amazingly so. His 13-year prison sentence reflects that, I think, because it's fairly light as far as Russian punishments go. However, Skripal had earned the personal ire of Vladimir Putin himself, and Putin wouldn't forgive or forget what Skripal had done. In 2010, four years after Skripal's conviction and sentencing, he was exchanged back to the British as part of the famous spy swap, which took place at the Vienna-Austria airport. Ten Russian illegals who had been arrested in the United States just days prior were swapped for Skripal and three other imprisoned Russians. Skripal and his wife settled into a new chapter in their lives in Salisbury, England. Over the next few years, Skripal continued to cooperate with Western intelligence services. He traveled throughout Europe and to the United States as a guest speaker, providing insight into Russian intelligence operations and methodology. This activity probably helped keep him on Putin's target list. Then, in March 2018, Skripal's daughter Yulia traveled to Salisbury from Moscow to visit her father and ask for his blessing for her marriage. Unbeknownst to anyone at the time, at nearly the same time that she arrived, two GRU agents traveled to England with false passports. They brought with them a small sample of the nerve agent Novichok, which they had disguised in a bottle of Nina Ricci's Premier Jour perfume. They made their way to Skripal's house, where they sprayed his front door with the nerve agent and then discarded the bottle and its container a few miles away. The following morning, Skripal and Yulia left the house, pulled the front door shut behind them, and walked to a nearby park. Other local residents soon found the two of them slumped together on a park bench. Yulia was unconscious, and Sergei was having convulsions. When the police began to investigate, a detective sergeant named Nick Bailey touched Skripal's door and also fell ill a few minutes later. He was hospitalized for three weeks, but eventually recovered fully. Both Sergei and Yulia Skripal also recovered after months in the hospital. This appears to be a case where it's clear that the Russian government wanted it known exactly what they had done and why. British law enforcement once again quickly tracked the suspected poisoners' movements via the country's vast network of surveillance cameras, just like they had done when Alexander Litvinenko was poisoned in 2006. However, the two agents had already flown back to Moscow just hours after the poison attack, or the nerve agent attack. British authorities conducted a long investigation, which reached the highest levels of government once the GRU's involvement was determined. Finally, in September 2018, six months after the attack, the government released the names of the suspects and officially accused Russia of employing a chemical weapon in London. The attackers had traveled with passports under the name 
Alexander Petrov and Ruslan Bosharov. Many different countries joined the Brits in expelling Russian diplomats in response to the assassination attempt. England, the U.S., and the Ukraine all did so, as well as the United Nations, NATO, and other countries expelled an unprecedented number of diplomats. 153 Russian diplomats and government personnel were expelled from these organizations and countries. Russia responded shortly thereafter by expelling a total of 189 diplomats sent from various governments as well. This may have been the largest mass expulsion of diplomats in history, and it created an enormous rift between Russia and much of the rest of the world. Then there was another very unexpected development. The two GRU assassins, Bosharov and Petrov, went on television and gave a disastrous interview to RT, the Russian state-sponsored media agency, just one week after the British government named them as suspects. While they were certainly capable intelligence officers, neither man had any apparent training in handling a televised interview. Both of them claimed that they were innocent civilians caught up in an international scandal. They both said that they had traveled from Moscow to Salisbury as tourists to visit the Salisbury Cathedral. Neither of them brought their families with them, and they were only in England for a total of 54 hours. They also weren't able to explain why they chose Salisbury, of all places in England, to visit, or why their hotel and their known walking routes took them nowhere near the cathedral. The men were clearly very uncomfortable throughout this televised interview, and they gave off a lot of indicators of deception in their posture and in their body language and their verbal answers. It seemed like Moscow didn't really care about creating an in-depth cover story for its agent's actions. Not long after the television interview was broadcast, the private intelligence collective known as Bellingcat identified Ruslan Bosharov as Colonel Anatoly Chepiga, a Spetsnaz veteran who had previously deployed to Chechnya, and Alexander Petrov was, in fact, Dr. Alexander Mishkin, a military doctor who likely held the rank of lieutenant colonel or colonel at the time of the poisoning. In 2014, both men were recipients of Russia's highest military award, the Hero of the Russian Federation. The Russian president, Putin, personally gives out these awards, similar to medals of honor in the United States. It wasn't known why they received these awards until mid-2021. That's when the Czech government revealed that after a seven-year-long investigation, they had determined that two ammunition warehouses, which exploded in 2014, were the work of Russian saboteurs. Chepiga and Mishkin had flown into the Czech Republic the day before the first explosion, posing as arms buyers from an international corporation. The warehouses that they targeted were storing ammunition bound for eastern Ukraine, where Russian forces were fighting in the breakaway Republic of Donetsk, trying to wrestle it away from the Ukrainian control. Four years after their successful mission to the Czech Republic, Putin sent two of his most trusted, most capable agents to carry out Skripal's poisoning in 2018. Unfortunately, there was an especially tragic postscript to this story, which happened three months after the attack. A Salisbury resident named Charlie Rowley found the bottle of Novichok in the donations bin of a local charity shop where the GRU assassins had placed it back in its original perfume box. Thinking it was just regular perfume, he presented it to his girlfriend, a mother of three named Dawn Sturgis. Dawn immediately sprayed the perfume on both wrists because she was so happy about getting this gift. But within 15 minutes, she collapsed, and Charlie did as well, since he'd been standing nearby when she used it. Dawn Sturgis 
eventually passed away and Charlie recovered, but only barely. And he survived with the knowledge that this gift that he had given with the best intentions had actually been a government-designed assassination weapon in disguise. Although this operation was in almost every way a spectacular failure for Russia, it didn't do anything to dissuade them from continuing with this strategy. It was also probably effective in dissuading many potential Russian defectors who now know that they will have to look over their shoulders for the rest of their lives if they betray their government. These attacks are still going on, and there's really no sign that they're going to stop anytime soon. As recently as 2020, Novichok nerve agent was used again in the poisoning of Alexei Navalny, the leader of Russia's Progress Party and a staunch critic of Putin. Navalny collapsed on a flight after he left the city of Tomsk. Foreign examiners found the poison in a water bottle in the hotel room he stayed in the previous night. Navalny eventually recovered after more than a month in a Berlin hospital, but has continued to face arrest and jail time and other pressures from Putin's government since then. There are also many other suspicious deaths and illnesses over the years which don't have any clear resolution. Some of these include Anatoly Sobchak, a Russian politician who died in 2000. On the same day that he died, his two bodyguards also became seriously ill. One forensic investigator wrote that they all probably inhaled a poison which had been sprayed on a light bulb on the bedside lamp in Sobchak's room. When the bulb turned on, it heated up and it dispersed the poison into the air. Another death was Ibn al-Khattab, a Chechen leader who died in 2002 after opening and reading a letter delivered to him which had been coated in an unknown poison substance. Then in 2012, Russian businessman Alexander Perepilichny collapsed and died while jogging near his home in the United Kingdom. He'd been involved in a financial scam in Russia, which netted him millions of dollars and also probably put him on Putin's kill list. Uh, I think more information will probably keep coming to light as the years pass, and there's a lot more names with a lot more suspicious deaths than what I've mentioned here. Like I said, there's probably many that will never even think died of a targeted assassination, but they just passed away peacefully or unexpectedly of a heart attack. And we'll, we'll just never have an accurate list, honestly. But one thing that we can be certain of is that camera has a long and bloody history and probably has a long and bloody future as well. If you're interested in more Spycraft 101, look for my page on Instagram, at Spycraft 101, or connect with me on Patreon. My patrons get exclusive access to long-form blog posts that dive deep into some of the most amazing stories in the history of espionage and receive free or discounted books and products from the Spycraft 101 store. That includes a free PDF copy of my own book, Spy Shots Volume 1, 101 True Tales from the World of Espionage. I want to say a big thank you to all of my patrons, including Lauren M. and James J. With your support, I've been able to continue funding my research and publication across multiple platforms today. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll stick around because there's lots more to come. Thanks for listening to this program brought to you by Daydreamer Network. If you enjoyed the episode, please don't forget to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred platform. Your feedback allows us to rank on the best new shows list and continue to grow our podcasts in order to bring more unique and talented storytellers to the network. To check out our shows, including programs about relationships, sports, business, nutrition, leisure, and more, head to www.daydreamernetwork.com. We look forward to seeing you back next week for another great episode. Have a wonderful day.